Thank you very much. I am glad to be here and I will directly start not to be too long. Don't be afraid. I hate to give a resume of the book which is the official pretext of this uh, appearance of mine. Only two things. First, the only common thing that the paper that I will deliver here has with the book is the topic of the neighbor. The book, of course, focuses on the neighbor as Judeo-Christian theological category. I will rather focus on neighbor as precisely the one of whom we are jealous as a political category. So, but nonetheless, before I begin, I would like to, because some friends are criticizing me a lot, I would like to clarify a misunderstanding. As if, although I emphasize that I am not religious and so on, do I not play? That's an intelligent criticism that my friend, uh, who was stupid enough to write a book about Mijivet's ontology, Adrian Johnston, formulated recently in a private communication letter to me that does I write books somehow celebrating Christianity, but at the same time I emphasize all the time, you know, I'm not religious privately and so on and so on, but on the other hand, I often describe this fetishist disavowal, typical functioning of ideology today. We practice beliefs, but we all claim, oh, who takes it seriously, we don't believe. So this logic of je sais bien, mais quand même, I know very well there is no God, but am I not falling into the same trap? That I think I'm just flirting with Christianity, really I'm an atheist, but what if, you know, I pretend to pretend, but in reality I, I'm more caught into it. Well, I think those who worry about this, the book The Monstrosity of Christ, should put them at ease. I have there long <laughs> debates on precisely what atheism could mean today, and this is just part of a larger movement I'm engaged in, thinking here with Alain Badiou, Johnston himself and others. I think very interesting things are going on today with topic of materialism. Uh, did you notice how throughout the 19th century, somehow the couple of materialism idealism was attached to, was linked to or over-determined by another couple, infinity finitude. The idea was idealists focus on the, uh, on the worthlessness of finite material objects, the true is the eternal, infinite, and so on. Well, materialists emphasize, no, only finite material, actual objects really exist, and so on, and so on. But uh, I agree here, again, with Alain Badiou and some of his pupils who claim that not only today, but throughout the 20th century already, maybe starting with early Heidegger, Sein und Zeit, we have the exactly opposite topic. Today, I claim, it is the religious, spiritualists, idealists, however you call them, who like to emphasize our irreducible finitude in the sense of we are embedded in certain life world, we cannot overstep this limitation and so on and so on. Why? The idea is that precisely this ultimate limitation, the finitude of our condition, means that then there is a void 
something inaccessible, close to us, where of course then the sacred can be located. So no wonder that all, the, the, or, okay, the, one of the typical so-called postmodern ways to save spirituality is to precisely insist on irreducible finitude. No wonder, and here I would like to correct myself, my reading of Andrei Tarkovsky, the Russian, no wonder that he is, and I love him, this is not a criticism, but it's interesting to know that Tarkovsky is at the same time maybe the most spiritual of modern 20th century filmmakers and the most earth-like. If there is a cinematographer who is so obsessed with materiality precisely in this sense of heaviness, wet, inertia of objects, the two go together. So, uh, on, and then there is, of course, another opposition between, uh, how should I call it, full ontological consistency of reality and openness. Uh, usually, this is why I still think, with all my friendship towards Lenin, that materialism in empirical criticism is one of the worst books ever written. There you have this naive idea that idealists think about this, you know, constructing reality unfinished, but that the basic materialist premise is things out there exist fully, ontologically. I claim here also we should turn it around. It is only materialism which can think. So materialism today, and that's what Badiou develops in a very nice way with all the, maybe he's half-bluffing, I'm not sure, references to, to Cantor and so on. It's a very nice point that he makes them that before Cantor, infinity was limited to the one, then spiritualized one. With Cantor, infinity becomes actual infinity, again, in the sense of also uh, multiplicity totally changes its status, which is why, maybe you know this from history of mathematics, that Cantor privately was a devout Catholic, and this he knew. This is why he was bothered all the time with a terrible sense of guilt. He was even, I think, writing to the Pope, like he basically knew what he was doing. Uh, so, we have materialist infinity and materialist ontological incompleteness. Uh, so, to cut a long story short, so that I will not get lost in these uh, preliminary improvisations. The, okay, God, why not, but... Okay, this is the only joke you will hear today. <laughs> Recently, I read a collection of jokes from Soviet Union, and I found one... I mean, this is for me the greatest spiritual loss of the fall of communism, you know, that, uh, that uh, the, this sudden fall of political jokes, which are of the highest quality there. One joke I like, it's not very funny, but the logic I like. The story, this is even an early joke, before Stalinism, of early Bolshevik joke about where they still believed in their propaganda power. Seriously, about a communist Bolshevik, great propaganda worker, who died. Of course, as a communist, he was sent to hell. There, being a great propaganda guy, he immediately talked his way into converted the guards to let him up to heaven, no? Then, next week, on the inspection of hell, uh, devil noticed the absence, no? And, uh, and uh, went up to God and said, wait a minute, this guy belongs to my domain, give it back to me, or whatever, ne? And God, the idea is already converted by this propaganda, no? God told him three things, no? 
First, no, he starts, devil. Oh, my lord, please. God says, stop. First, I'm not lord. I'm comrade. Point two, I don't exist. Are you dreaming? Point three, don't talk too much. Because if you talk too much, I will miss my party meeting and so on. No? This type of God, nothing against. No. Okay, now, enough of jokes. I have some political, serious, patient stuff to do. Let me do it. I will, would like to begin with the book, which is a charming book. Alan Weissman's The World Without Us. You know what it is. It offers a vision of what would have happened if humanity, and only humanity, were to disappear suddenly from the surface of the earth. Natural diversity blooming again, nature gradually regaining, reoccupying human artifacts. We humans are here, in this book, reduced to a pure disembodied gaze, observing, as it were, our own absence. As Lacan points out, this is the fundamental subjective position of fantasy, to be reduced to a gaze which observes the world in the condition of the subject's non-existence. Which is why one of the fundamental fantasies is precisely the fantasy of witnessing the act of one's own conception or parental copulation, like how it is when I was not yet there. Or, of course, the other complementary fant fantasy, the fantasy of witnessing one's own funeral, like, you know, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Uh, along the same lines, and this already brings us to jealousy, a jealous child likes to indulge in the fantasy of imagining how his parents would react to his own death, putting at stake his own absence. So the world without us, this book, is thus a fantasy at its purest, witnessing the earth itself retaining its pre-castrated state of innocence before we humans spoiled it with our hubris. The irony is that the most prominent example comes in this book from the catastrophe of Chernobyl. The exuberant nature taking over the disintegrating debris of the nearby city Pripyat, which was abandoned, left the way uh, as it was. I claim and this is all I will say about jealousy, I claim that this structure of imagining how it is, imagining a utopian scene from which I am a priori excluded, this is the structure of jealousy. And here I would like to take an example from a contemporary Israeli writer, David Grossman, uh, in his Her Body Knows, a collection of two short stories, okay, short novels. The first novella, I think, is a great one. It does for jealousy in literature what Louis Buñuel did for jealousy with his film L. He. Grossman produces a masterpiece which displays the basic phantasmatic coordinates of this notion. In jealousy, the subject, when, for example, if you are a man jealous of what your wife is doing, screwing like crazy, your best friend or what, while you are not there. I, all I want to do is to draw your attention to this purely formal aspect. You create, imagine a paradise, a utopia of non-castrated full jouissance, from which you are a priori excluded. Even 
some Hollywood films which are otherwise celebrated by feminists should be read in this way. Maybe they're not as terribly emancipatory as they appear to be. In, this is how John Kobjack reads, you know, that masterpiece with, with, uh, with Barbara Stanwyck, uh, Stella Dallas, which was remade recently with Beth Midler. I don't think the remake was so good. You know what happens? The mother, who is a little bit vulgar, has a problem. Her daughter falls in love, wants to marry a rich guy. I simplify the story very much. A guy from a rich family, and the mother knows that her daughter is now divided. Will she wants to be, of course, with the rich guy, but she knows that this will exclude her mother. So to make it easy, the mother uh, pretends to be much more vulgar than she is, enabling the daughter to drop her without feeling guilty, as it were. And then you have the famous melodramatic scene in a house, enlightened. The marriage goes on, and from outside, with the blessed face, the mother observes it. I think this is precisely creating the utopia. The perfect couple, the family is recreated, but you are excluded. And my point is simply that this same definition applies also to what one can call political jealousy. From the anti-Semitic fantasies about the excessive enjoyment of the Jews, to the Christian fundamentalist fantasies about the weird sexual practices of gays, lesbians, and so on, and so on. And as I already developed many times in my books, I think it's precisely this phantasmatic logic of jealousy, a space, you know, for a Christian fundamentalist, all the horrible things they are doing, you try to imagine them. Uh, this is what distinguishes, for me, authentic fundamentalists from a fake ones. I'm here ready to follow my friend Fred Jameson and claim, my God, I have nothing, I love true fundamentalists. I'm not idealizing them. For example, Amish. I know they have the highest percentage of family rapes in <laughs> United... But one thing you should say about the Amish and, Amish, and I'm not totally bluffing, I talked with some of them, this kind of, you know, typically uh, Christian fundamentalist uh, gel jealousy, you know, and, and at the same time fascination. Oh my God, what, what are they doing? Orgies and so on. It's totally absent. They don't have this type of jealousy. Even the others, of whom I often make fun, but nonetheless, here one should confess, Tibetan Buddhists. Also, I've spoken with some of them when I visited their capital, Boulder, Colorado, where... <laughs> no, it's really their economic capital. There, you have a pizzeria whose owner is Dalai Lama's brother. No, that, that's, that's life, no? Uh, so, but what I want to say is that, uh, really, this kind of... There is none of this, you know, fascination, as if the others whom I deplore have some kind of excessive... Enjoyment. So again, the structure here in jealousy is that of fetishism, fetishism as the denial of castration. Apparently we will say, but is not this the ultimate castration? You are excluded. No, 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 no. You are excluded. That's the price to construct the object as non-castrated. You are excluded and precisely by this, the object, the fantasy scene, is the one of non-castrated enjoyment. So how does this function in ideology? In what type of ideology I already mentioned anti-Semitism is this fetishist logic of jealousy predominant. Here, now, I would like to go on by distinguishing two different modes of, let's call it naively, ideological mystification. We should in no way confuse them. 
for simplistic terms, I will call them the liberal democratic one and the populist fascist one. It's a very simple opposition, but I think it works. And it's especially actual today. The first one, liberal democratic ideological mystification, concerns false universality. The subject advocates, let, for example, freedom equality, not being aware of implicit qualifications which, in their very form, constrain the scope of this universality. Privileging certain social strata, rich male belonging to a certain race of culture, and so on, and so on. So again, the logic here is the one of false universality. No? You claim human rights, but do you not privilege? Do not, do, does not your list of human rights privilege certain cultural, sexual, whatever identity? But then I claim the second, for simplistic terms, this is not a concept, it's purely descriptive, I call it fascist populist, mystification concerns, works in a totally different way. It concerns the false identification of the antagonism and of the enemy. As we all know, it's the ABC of analysis of ideology. For example, in antisemitism, class struggle is or social antagonism, is displaced onto the struggle against the Jews, so that the popular rage at being exploited is redirected from capitalist relations as such to the Jewish plot. Uh, and I mean, these mechanisms are actual, I will return later to them, even today, for example, I'm not saying that, how is he called, Bernard Madoff, or Madoff, it's my best friend, but I feel certain sympathy for it. No, you know why? How to put it? Did you notice this explosion of ideology, how, uh, how to put it, how his guilt was personalized, rend uh, rendered into some kind of, almost, it was almost anti-Semitic, as if you know, he, the dirty Jew, a freak, even Eli, how do you pronounce it, Eli Wiesel, the great knight, fell into this trap, didn't he say something like, uh, you are a scum, and so on and so on. Wait a minute, he was just following more radically than others, I claim, the logic of the system. Don't make him, don't make him, it was a clear example of mystifying as a psychological category, you know, it's uh, uh, something which is inscribed into the logic of the social process. It's incredible, this disgusting, mystifying, moralizing. Even the Pope fell into it recently. The Pope said how he warned us uh, uh, against, uh, against craving for too much material wealth, gluttony, and so on. My God, that's not... In capitalism, these categories are not psychological categories. They are inscribed into the functioning of the system. But what's my point, to go to the main line? So, I will, would like to put it in very clear, naive, hermeneutic terms. In the first case, liberal democratic mystification, we can say that when the subject says freedom and equality, he really means freedom of trade, equality only in front of the law, only of white male people, and so on and so on. In the second case, when the subject says Jews are the cause of our misery, he really means, without knowing, big capital is the cause of our misery, mystifies it. But did you notice the difference of the whole logic of mystification? In the first case, I'm again consciously, to keep it clear, using very naive terms. In the first case, 
what is explicit is, to put it very naively, the good thing, the good content. Who is opposed to universal freedom, equality, and so on. But the implicit content is bad. The surface is good, freedom, equality. The problem is what is hidden beneath all the secret quali uh, qualifications. No? Freedom for whom, to do what, equality of whom, to do what. While in the second case, it is the explicit content which is, to put it naively, bad, anti-Semitism, but the implicit content is potentially good. Why not? Uh, uh, class struggle, hatred of exploitation, and so on and so on. The logic of mystification is, is uh, different. Now, this, of course, fits the psychoanalytic couple of symptom and fetish. In the first case, we have the logic of symptom, universal category, betrayed, falsified by its symptoms, secret qualifications, which, again, belie its explicit content. In the second case, we have fetish. Almost literally. You know how Freud defines fetish. The last thing, usually, that usually the fetish object is the last thing the subject sees before seeing feminine genitals, the lack of. Here we can also say the Jew is the last thing you see before class struggle, no? and then you elevate that into... <coughs> now comes a very sad conclusion. This asymmetry has, I think, crucial consequences for the critico-ideological process of demystification. In the case of liberal egalitarianism, the interpretive demystification is relatively easy. You simply, when you criticize a liberal democrat, all you have to do is to mobilize the tension between form and content. You, I mean, you know what I mean, you can show him, listen, you, so you pretend, you say equality, freedom, but can't you see that effectively you exclude some people and so on and so on? And which is this, then it is relatively easy to convince a liberal democrat. He will have to admit, yeah, it's true, and then he will have either to radicalize his position, okay, we should include also some property equality against exploitation, whatever, or the usual way out, he will adopt some kind of a pragmatic cynicism. He will say, okay, I agree with you, but if we realize equality too directly, it will be counterproductive and it will, uh, it will generate new, new domination, new forms of whatever. But nonetheless, their interpretation works. While in the, this is true clinically as well as politically. Clinically in the sense that as Freud knew very well, it is practically impossible to convert a fetishist. You know, you cannot, you cannot convince a fetish. It's fetish, but really... It's, and if there is a lesson from the history of uh, politics, is that in exactly the same way, although once you are in, if you are not even a Marxist, every liberal, most of them, would accept this, that, uh, that anti-Semitism, that the Jew is the condensation, displacement of fetishist ersatz for denying some basic social discontent, antagonism, whatever. Uh, although it seems to us so obvious, but as the history of politics shows, it is much easier to convince a liberal democrat, listen, your universality is a false one. You know, in reality, those minorities, blah, blah, are, 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 are in the secondary position, it's not true equality. Then to convince, for example, a lower middle class 
anti-Semite that you are attacking Jews, but can't you see that your real enemy is the capital and so on? So why don't you go directly to the point? It doesn't work. It's clinically and politically true. For example, uh, there are many cases, unfortunately, in the opposite direction. Disappointed communists turned anti-Semitic right-wingers. We all know how many, not too many, let's not exaggerate, but nonetheless... <laughs> no, no, because sometimes, if you read German history, is it as if the entire ex-communist party turned into Nazis? It wasn't as simple as that, no? But nonetheless, also in, in France, again, let's not exaggerate, but nonetheless, many ex-communists did turn into Le Pen supporters. But these are other reasons. Unfortunately, you know that Le Pen is the only considerable political force today in France which refers to working class. Protecting, that's another story. But what I want to say is that, uh, you know, this process of mystification is much easier than the process of demystification. It's practically impossible to demystify uh, an anti-Semitic worker, to convince him, but can't you see this is only a, 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 met a metaphor, a fetishist ersatz? Can't you see it's really a class struggle, and so on and so on. Ah, now comes a problematic part, and I would like now to offend everyone, uh, anti-Zionist and, uh, and anti-Arabs. First, with regard to today's situation, this means that I think one should at least view with profound suspicion those leftists who argue that the Muslim fundamentalist populist movements are basically ours, anti-imperialist emancipatory movements, and that the fact that they often formulate their program in directly anti-enlightenment, anti-universalist terms, something even close to direct anti-Semitism, that this is just... The, the understandable confusion, you know, the story of, okay, sometimes they sound as anti-Semitic, but you should never forget that they really mean anti-Zionism, no? Okay, I have a problem with this. My problem is that in this way you can redeem even Hitler, I mean, you can also say, and in a way, at an interpretive level, it is true to say that when Hitler was attacking Jews, he was really attacking uh, financial capitalism, no? Okay, but so what? Six million, ten million people had to die, no? I mean, uh, uh, I, I uh, uh, how to put it? Uh, I don't believe in this logic of, okay, at some later point they will see that, that Jews are really just a metaphor for class enemy, so let's make a strategic alliance, especially if it's an anti-American one. I think this is, here I agree with Jewish critics of too much tolerance of anti-Semitism, like from Chicago, Moshe Postone, who pointed out how this type of alliance with this naive hope that, okay, this is just a contingent historical limitation and, like, to go to the extreme and uh, 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 ten years from now, even, even Bin Laden will see that it's not the Jews, that it's really the capitalism or whatever, no? No, because I think the point is not so much the Jews. The point is that these Arab movements, that's what for me makes them problematic, is that they define themselves as ultimately, most of them, not all, things are here much more refined, as ultimately radically anti-enlightenment. If you read their programs, some of them I did, the enemy is not the Jew. The enemy is usually very clear, French Revolution, with this destructuring, that's what I 
like most about French Revolution. Okay, so this is, I think, what makes very dangerous phenomena like, you know, this fascinating evil figure, uh, Barbet Schroeder wrote, uh, did a documentary on him, Jacques Vergès. He was, on the one hand, radically anti-colonialist leftist figure who finished now defending all the big last surviving uh, Nazis like Klaus Barbie and so on. It's precisely this wrong alliance, anything goes if it's anti-American, Herschel put it. No? Uh, so I reject this. On the other hand, the situation is much more tragic. Now comes, if you are more pro-Palestinian, the other side. Even in the case of clearly fundamentalist movements, one should be careful not to trust the media. Let me take the extreme example, Taliban. They are in our media regularly presented as fundamentalist Islamist group enforcing its rule with terror and so on and so on. However, about a week and a half ago, from time to time, truth emerges in our media. Did you notice there was even in New York Times, I think, a wonderful report on what really happened when, you know now, the latest fear. You know that in Pakistan even the army withdrew from that Swat Valley, Taliban took over. It was mostly presented in our media as simple fundamentalist takeover and so on and so on. My God, we simply didn't know what is going on there. Namely that what the Taliban did is organize a class revolt which exploited profound fissures between a small group of wealthy landlords and their landless tenants. It was a class revolution. Let me quote from New York Times so that you will not suspect me of some Arab propaganda. <laughs> quote, in Swat, part of Pakistan where Taliban is now officially almost in power, accounts from those who have fled now make it clear that the Taliban seized control by pushing out about four dozen landlords who held the most power. To do so, the militants organized peasants into armed gangs that became their shock troops. The Taliban's ability to exploit class divisions adds a new moment to the insurgency and it's raising alarm <coughs> about the risks to Pakistan, which remains largely feudal. Mahmoud, Ma Mahbub Mahmoud, the Pakistani-American lawyer said, quote, the people of Pakistan are psychologically ready for a revolution. Sunni militancy is taking advantage of deep class divisions that have long festered Pakistan. The militants are promising more than just proscription on music and schooling. They are promising effective government and economic redistribution. So you see, this is the other side that you get, my God. And... Uh, uh, this confirms the old thought of Walter Benjamin that every rise of fascism bears witness to a failed revolution. So even if Taliban are, to use this fashionable but for me, for me problematic term, Islamo-fascists, they are nonetheless enacting taking over a revolutionary agenda which is missing. In other words, I think that in phenomena it's clear to me, like, there is nothing, how should I put it, uh, natural, in the sense of spontaneous process, in phenomena like Taliban. In it, the West is paying the price for its catastrophic politics 
throughout the decades of after World War II, when it was making a judgment, catastrophic judgment, that the main danger are secular leftists, so anything goes you can support, all the fundamentalists just to screw the left. Now, they have like, show me one, to, to put it in a cynical way, show me one axis of evil fundamentalist who wasn't 10 years ago a CIA agent. <laughs> That's the tragedy. In other words, uh, uh, I, uh, you know this well-known argument that, liberal argument that, about the similarities between left and right extremisms, extremisms. Hitler's terror camps imitated Bolshevik terror. The Leninist party is today alive in Al-Qaeda. I claim yes, but what does all this mean? It can also be read as an indication of how fascism literally replaces, takes the place of the leftist revolution. Its rise is the left's failure, but simultaneously a proof that there is a revolutionary potential, a dissatisfaction which the left was not able to mobilize. And again, I think the same holds for what people sometimes call today Islamofascism. Is the rise of radical Islamism not exactly correlative to the disappearance of the secular left in Muslim countries? Let me take two, ob one would be enough, obvious example. Today's Afghanistan. Today Afghanistan is portrayed as the ultimate fundamentalist country. But my God, if you are, and some of us here unfortunately are, old enough to remember at least 30 years of history back. At that point, are you aware that 30, 40 years ago, uh, Afghanistan was one of the most secularized Middle East Muslim countries. They had a king who was a kind of a enlightened, pro-Western, a little bit technocratic monarch. They had an autochthonous, very strong communist party, which even in a coup d'etat took power, and that's important. As declassified documents show now, that took over was not even orchestrated by Soviet Union. It took them by surprise. It's only when it didn't work that Soviet Union uh, intervened. That's the tragedy. Out of this, and there are other wonderful examples that I read about, how, for example, 30, 40 years ago, it was extremely tolerant country where in some of the cities they even had this wonderful, I think, sincerely, without any irony, habit of people of different confessions visiting each other's ritual. You know, Christians visited, Muslims, and so on. So, how did Afghanistan become what it is? Through the disappearance of secular left, through its being caught in global politics. Again, we should never forget this. It's not some old primitive fundamentalist country which is resisting globalization. It was a tolerant, enlightened country which, the way it was globalized, pushed it into fundamentalism. N not to mention that you have your own example in the United States of the same process. Uh, Kansas, you know, Thomas Frank's nice book, which demonstrates exactly this, literally this Benjamin's thesis of how uh, left populism, sorry, right populism replaces the failure of the left. You know that Kansas is which is now the absolute bedrock of Christian fundamentalism, is uh, historically, the, no wonder John Brown, maybe the most radical figure in American emancipatory politics, was from Kansas. Kansas in the Roosevelt era and so on, was the bedrock of all radical leftist populist movements. Now, it's uh, the other way around. 
we all know anti-communist the anti-communist characterization of marxism as the islam of the 20th century the idea is that marxism secularizes islam's abstract fanaticism jean-pierre taguyev the liberal historian of anti-semitism turned this characterization around claiming that islam is turning out to be the marxism of the 21st century prolonging after the decline of communism its violent anti-capitalism however again if we take into account benjamin's idea of fascism as occupying the place of a failed revolution then the rational core of such inversions can be easily accepted that is to say of course the fact that uh, islam is turning out to be the marxism of 21st century simply means that when the left the secular left fails populist right-wingers take over the empty place the most catastrophic conclusion that can be drawn from this constellation is the one drawn among others by Moishe Poston whom I otherwise from Chicago whom I otherwise to avoid a misunderstanding highly appreciate for his excellent work of reactualizing Marxist critique of political economy his conclusion is that since every crisis which opens up the space for radical left also gives rise to anti-semitism and then usually the right-wing populism and anti-semitism win it is better for us leftists to support successful capitalism and hope there will be no crisis brought to its conclusion and this conclusion was formulated by bernard andre levy among others this reasoning implies that ultimately anti-capitalism as such is today anti-semitic now that's dangerous for me so what's where is the misunderstanding here the difference between liberalism and the radical left is that although they refer to the same three elements liberal center populist right radical left they locate them in a radically different topology for the liberal center radical left and radical right are the two forms of appearance of the same totalitarian excess while for the left the only true alternative is the one between itself the left and the liberal mainstream the populist radical right is nothing but the symptom of the liberalism's inability to deal with the leftist threat this is why for a true leftist the conflict between liberal permissiveness and fundamentalism is a false conflict a vicious cycle of two poles generating presupposing each other and that's for me crucial when we are dealing for example with a big conflict like the middle east conflict i think it's absolutely crucial to insist that in a fundamental sense this is a false conflict even if there will be a world war and we all die because of it i cannot you know what i mean it's not a true conflict both sides play a false game there some arabs use this conflict to avoid their own mod modernization to avoid their own revolution zionists play their own game it's a false conflict what so what is going on there let me give you now a short reading of how i see a situation there uh, i unconditionally i hope it's clear from what i said oppose any type of anti-semitism even a soft one you know in the sense of oh we should forgive them because uh, 
they are so screwed up by the Zionists that they can afford a little. No, I, I think, I think anti-Semitism is unconditionally. I know how to put it moralistically, totally evil, not only for obvious ethical reasons, but also because I think anti-Semitism is a kind of a, how should I put it, zero level of ideology. Ideology as such. It's a pure mechanism. You take an inherent, immanent antagonism, you replace it by an external intruder to be liquidated, to re-establish harmony. But what goes on in the Middle East? It is sometimes very productive to read two disparate, different news items together, and then a new meaning, like a spark, explodes. For example, on March 1st, 2009, it was reported that the Israeli government, you see, it's one of these small notes which appear in our media but lack what Levi-Strauss would have called symbolic efficiency. No, nobody even notices them. So you see, I'm here on optimist in the sense of if you read carefully, we don't need any secret sources. Everything is in a way in the media. You just have to to read it. You know what it says in our media? Again, my source is here in New York Times, not any Palestinian or whatever propaganda. March 1st, 2009. Check it. It was reported that the Israeli government has drafted plans to build more than 70,000 new housing units uh, in the occupied West Bank. If implemented, the plans could increase the number of settlers in the West Bank by about 300,000. And it's clear what this means. The end of any dream of a West Bank Palestinian state. Because also, if you look closely, it, again, my source is here, New York Times, you see how these new buildings new plans for new settlements are not located close to already existing settlements, but they are nicely dispersed all around, you know, like to basically to make withdrawal meaningless. Even the game that now officially the state of Israel likes to play, no? Okay, we will more or less withdraw, just we will keep some, some territories where our settlements are concentrated. Well, this precisely, this plan deconcentrates them. Uh, what happens then when this news exploded? An Israeli government spokesman dismissed this report, saying that the plans were of limited relevance. The actual construction of new homes requires, he says, the approval of the defense minister and the prime minister. So this is the typical bureaucratic. He didn't say it's not true. He just, you know, engaged in this bureaucratic doublespeak. However, 15,000 of these plans have already be, been fully approved, so the process is going on. Uh, the conclusion is obvious. While paying lip service to the two-state solution, Israel is busy creating the situation on ground which will render a two-state solution de facto impossible. Uh, the other item, news item, on the very same day these reports hit the media, one day later, okay, March the 2nd, Hillary Clinton, on the visit, visiting Israel, criticized the rocket fire from Gaza as cynical, claiming, quote, there is no doubt that any nation, including Israel, cannot stand idle, idly by while its territory and people are subjected to rocket attacks, end of quote. 
But I have a naive question. But should the Palestinians stand idly while the West Bank land is taken from them day, day by day? That's the problem. That is to say, when Israeli peace-loving liberals present their conflict with Palestinians in neutral, symmetrical terms, admitting there are extremists on both sides who reject peace and so on and so on, one should ask a simple question. What goes on in the Middle East when nothing goes on there? That is to say, when, you know, no big terrorist attacks, no big bombings, like when nothing happens which is worth being noticed by the media. Well, what goes on is precisely this continuous slow work of taking the land from the Palestinians on the West Bank. The gradual strangling of Palestinian economy, the parceling of their land, the building of new settlements, the pressure on Palestinian farmers to make them abandon their land. For example, are you aware that, again, my source are here, our own Western big media, are you aware that there are in the last years literally almost daily violent acts of, by settlement groups of terrorizing uh, West Bank Palestinian farmers? They go up to burning mosques, but mostly small level, like po poisoning wells, burning the crops, and so on and so on. Again, my source here are, again, New York Times and some uh, uh, definitely not pro-Palestinian, maybe liberal Israeli newspapers like Haaretz and so on. Uh, I think the way to approach the situation in Palestina is a Kafkaesque approach. There is an interesting book published uh, in 2008 by, I hope I will pronounce the name correctly, Sari Magdisi, Palestine Inside Out, an Everyday Occupation, which describes nicely how occupation there works. It's not predominantly terror, it's occupation by bureaucracy, a kind of Foucauldian Kafkaesque dream of control, totally irrational, excessive, small regulations. It's a nightmare. For example, if you are an, if you are an Arab living in East Jerusalem to buy or change apartment or simple things like this with many other crazy sub-regulations. For example, I don't know. Ah, my source here is, I heard him on British TV, Tony Blair. He was shocked when he visited his now European Union missionary, whatever for Well, he said that he discovered crazy things like, do you know, if you are on the West Bank, a Jewish farmer, you can dig well for water as deep as you want. If you are a Palestinian farmer, you can dig three feet deep. I don't know what's the idea, that you can dig a tunnel or whatever, but there are hundreds of regulations like this concerning freedom of movement and so on and so on. So, what I'm saying is that this is the reality which we see, and to avoid any misunderstanding, I unconditionally oppose so-called terrorist attacks. Even more, to make it clear, I oppose that uh, Hezbollah attack from Lebanon, because this was probably part of Iran's uh, power play, and there they even cannot claim that they have any like, you know what I mean? In, on the West Bank, you can at least understand terrorist attacks. It's their country, desperate acts, and so on. I mean, but the delimitation is clear in Lebanon. Nobody, uh, you know what I mean? Israel doesn't claim it's our land in the north. Lebanese don't claim like it's clearly just some playing games. And so I'm not justifying this. But what I'm saying, nonetheless, is that we should be aware of this fundamental asymmetry. 
Again, what happens when nothing happens? That's the key to the crisis. I'm not saying this justifies terror, and I mean this seriously. But I'm nonetheless saying that they are desperate, you know. They're, how do you say when the woman is approaching menopause? Their biological clock is ticking, perhaps you put it, no? I mean, five, five, ten years more, and it will be even ridiculous to talk about two states. And this would be my accusation of the state of Israel. It was typical, I checked it, I read their government proclamation when the state of Israel, to put, to, one should admit, did try to contain these excesses, daily attacks on, on, uh, of the illegal West Bank settlers on Palestinian farmers, you know, burning their crops, what I mentioned, and so on. But it's very interesting to read the, how the officials uh, addressed them, the settlers. It was very ambiguous, which took, if you cut the crap, as we put it. The official State of Israel critique of them was, don't you see that we are working in the same direction? With your brutality, you will just, you will just spoil everything. Leave us to do it slowly the way it, the way it should be done. Uh, okay, so let me go on. Uh, I am afraid to talk too long, so I will, uh, sorry, jump a little bit. Now, okay, not to get lost, I would like now to pass from this ultimate example of ethnic tensions, Israel versus Palestinians, to, I would like to generalize it. I think that today, and this brings us to more general presupposition of this economy of jealousy, today I claim... Uh, it's that more and more a neighbor, other ethnic group, even other sex, and so on, is perceived, and that's all the point about sexual harassment and so on, multiculturalist tolerance, as toxic. And I mean this quite literally. I noticed a wonderful, in the disgusting sense, phenomenon. How, did you notice how the notion and topic of toxic subject or toxic subjects is gaining ground recently. I counted almost 10 books on different aspects of it, like one of them, Lillian Glass, Toxic People. The book identifies 30 types of to toxic people, and uh, 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 identifying them through humorous labels like the smiling, two-faced, sneaky, backstabber, and so on and so on, <laughs> and then gives strategies how to contain them, uh, and so on and so on. Another book, Albert Bernstein, emotional vampires, dealing with people who drain you dry, and so on. This idea that the neighbor is potentially toxic vampire, which incidentally I think it's true, but that's another story. Yeah. Uh, no, what interests me, and this account, this makes the category of toxic people strictly ideological, is that in a paradigmatic postmodern way, the predicate topic tends to cover a series of properties which belong to totally different levels, natural, cultural, psychological, political, in a totally inconsistent way, if you are serious, cognitively, they are brought together under the same category. A toxic subject can be an immigrant who, with a deadly disease who should be quarantined. It can be a terrorist whose deadly plans should be prevented. It can be a fundamentalist ideologist who should be silenced because he is spreading hatred. 
It can be a parent, a teacher, or a priest who abuses and corrupts children, and so on, and so on. And in a way, of course, this is true. For example, with parents. I claim that, of course, there are no parents who are really fully non-toxic. In It's part of the very notion of mother. Everybody knows this. Mother is a bitch. I don't know how good she is. She always manipulates at some level. Paternal authority also. I mean, the, so I think the conclusion that we should make here is precisely that uh, ultimately subject, precisely subject in the sense of neighbor, in this radical Christian sense. Not, what is the radical Christian sense? Uh, uh, op- it's the sense opposed to fellow men, the semblable, the one who is like us. Neighbor is precisely the monstrous otherness, the undead, like vampire-like, you know, when you... There is a fellow man, your best friend, then he does something horrible, a sneaky remark, and all of a sudden you say, my God, what a monster he is. I, I didn't know he or she is able, more she than he. Uh, <laughs> 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 this is, yeah, yeah, this is, uh, I just wanted to annoy you, my God. You know, <laughs> it's my modest hope, that, you know, okay. So this is when, uh, when uh, the neighbor becomes uh, uh, toxic, the, when the fellow man becomes the neighbor. And I claim that part of our, we today, we are on one hand, I'm giving you a very simplified analysis, we are in a global society, all that stuff. At the same time, because we are lacking firm traditional symbolic identities, neighbors are getting more and more toxic. And here we should make a jump from this personal level to a more political level. I think Italy is here, maybe, the land of our future. Why? As if in an ironic note to Giorgio Agamben's theory about state of emergency and so on. Do you know that in July 2008, another of these small items that people even tend not to read, but everything is in the media, I claim, uh, the Italian government proclaimed the state of emergency in the entire Italy. Are you aware of this, that Italy is now, it's, let me count, July, for almost a year, Italy is now formally under emergency state, and with a very precise implication, which they are practicing. Emergency state means you are allowed to deploy army units, not against an external enemy, but inside the territory to guarantee peace and so on. It started typically against the toxic neighbors. Army units were employed on the southern shores to prevent the flow of immigrants from North Africa and Eastern Europe. Then, in, already in August 2008, the Italian government deployed 4,000 armed soldiers to control sensitive points in big cities, train stations, commercial centers, and it goes on and on. Recently there are, I'm not kidding, serious plans to to put army units into great parks to prevent, to protect women from rapes. So now you will tell me, but you exaggerate, my God, but it's life goes normally in Italy. That's why I think Italy is the country of future. Because this is how it will be, the forthcoming, this is my sad prediction, uh, global emergency state. It will not be, you know, this, we will awaken and uh, military dictatorship curfew. Life will go on 
like normal, but as they will put it, precisely to guarantee this normality more and more. Armed units here, there, more and more control checkpoints, and so on, and so on. Which is the logic underlying this process of... Of course, it's the logic of, let's call it, detoxicating the neighbor. How is this done? One of my intellectual heroes, bad joke, he's disgusting, but typical. You know who was Robert, Robert Brasiliach, the great French fascist intellectual? I am against his death penalty. Not that I sympathize with him, but I think it was effectively, you know, what was the problem of France in 45? That the large majority of civil servants and so on collaborated with Vichy. And it's typical to learn that the judge who condemned him to death was an old Vichy judge. So he thought, ah, let me pass that sentence on this guy so that I will, and so on and so on. I mean, nobody was, France really ha has a problem here. Nobody was clean there. Mitterrand was still 43, Vichy. Then, when he smelled the new direction of the wind, oh, let's change sides, no? Didn't you know? Mitterrand was still 43, Vichy, and so on. Uh, okay, uh, Brasiliach in 1938 proposed a wonderful, in a terrifying sense, formula which I think is more and more operative today. He spoke of reasonable anti-Semitism. Here is a quote. We, uh, with reference to names, uh, 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 concerning the names that you will hear, bear in mind that this is written in 1938. We grant ourselves permission to applaud Charlie Chaplin, a half-Jew, at the movies to admire Proust, a half-Jew, to applaud Yehudi Menuhin, a Jew, and, I love this, even the voice of Hitler is carried over radio waves named after the Jew Hertz, and so on, <laughs> like this one. <laughs> we don't want to kill anyone, we don't want to organize any pogrom, but we also think that the best way to hinder the always unpredictable actions of instinctual anti-Semitism is to organize a reasonable anti-Semitism. I think, I now I will stop any America bashing, I don't like it, and I will be critical towards Europe, because we Europeans, I think, are, are de facto much worse than you Americans here, at this level of dangerous neighbor detoxicating racism. This type of reasonable anti-Semitism. Okay, today, of course, we will talk about reasonable anti-immigrant racism. Is simply the predominant politics in Europe. This was the true victory of the radical populist left. And Le Pen, who is not an idiot, said this openly. When asked why is his party slowly losing, he said, because we won. Because our agenda is generally accepted. And it's true. Listen to a typical sometimes, not sometimes, often, even social democratic government, how do they reason? They say, we totally reject any violence against immigrants. This is deplorable, uh, uh, this is in total contradiction with our civilized standards, and so on and so on. But, then comes a but, which is the victory of Le Pen, but we should nonetheless understand that too many immigrants arouse understandable anxieties and fear of ordinary people. And precisely in order to prevent violent outbursts of people, we should pre act preventively controlling the immigrants and so on and so on. So let me imagine, I like this, a kind of a how today's Robert Brasiliach would put it in Europe or in the United States. Uh, 
we grant ourselves permission to applaud African and African uh, singers and sportsmen, East European sportsmen, Asian doctors, Indian software programmers. We don't want to kill anyone. We don't want to organize any pogrom. But we also think that the best way to hinder the always unpredictable, violent anti-immigrant measures is to organize a reasonable anti-immigrant politics. That's the predominant, that's the doxa today. Brasiliak, the fascist one. Now, another point. I told you how crucial it is for the notion of uh, uh, this toxic neighbor to distinguish between neighbor, as this abyss of otherness, horror, and fellow men. What's the most difficult for us to accept it's not the inhumanity of the neighbor, but his, her, their humanity. This is why I think this Jonathan Little's novel, The Kindly Ones, Le Bien Veillon, caused such a scandal. I'm not saying it's a great novel, to be frank. It's too long, 950 pages and so on. But you know what the novel is about, no? It's about the fake, of course, memoirs, a fictional first-person account of the Holocaust from a German participant, the SS Obersturmbannführer Maximilian Aue. So it precisely tells the story from his side. And as such, the book is the best argument against that allegedly deep multiculturalist slogan, which I think I mocked already the last time I was here. You know that pseudo-deep wisdom, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. You know this cheap stupidity like, I hate you only because I didn't really hear to your side of the story. If I were to hear you, I would have seen you have your own anxieties, fears, dreams, and I would say I cannot hate you. Well, here we do get the enemy's story, no? And <laughs> if anything, he should be more enemy, no? That's, that's, and you see, this is what we are not ready to accept. And although I don't agree fully with, with uh, Hannah Arendt, but this is also, I think, what renders so traumatic her thesis about the banality of evil. That, you know, imagine talking to Hitler. I mean, he, he, I definitely know he had moments of pathetic sentimentality, he liked small children. They are all warm human beings, close up, no? That's so difficult to accept, this, this dimension of it. So, uh, let me go on. So, again, our situation today is this one, exposed to toxic neighbors. Ah, now, just to finish a little bit of Marxism. How did we get here? I will start with 1968, the big protest. It focused its struggle, at least in Europe, against what was perceived as the three pillars of capitalism. Factory, school, family. And as the result, each domain was submitted to what we call post-industrial transformation. Factory work is today more and more outsourced or in the developed world reorganized along the post-Fordist, non-hierarchical, interactive teamwork, all that story. Permanent, flexible private education is more and more replacing universal public education. Multiple forms of flexible sexual arrangements are replacing the traditional family. And this is, I think, here I don't agree with my good friend Alain Badiou, who still 
sticks to this myth of 68. I think that, again, the targets were totally wrong. We can experience it today. Again, the big motto, remember, was against factory, against big state education, against family. Okay, they won, and now what we get is even worse, to cut a long story short. The left lost in its very victory. The direct enemy was defeated, but replaced by a new form of capitalist domination. In postmodern capitalism, market is invading new spheres which were hitherto considered the privileged domain of the state, from education to prison and security. We are thus in the middle of a new process of the privatization of the social. And to grasp these new forms of privatization, I claim one should critically transform Marxist conceptual apparatus. What is for me, to be very simple, I'm now following Postone and up to a point Negri and some Italian economists with all my naive ignorance of this topic. But my God, I'm desperately trying to do because I think that, you know what's so dramatic for me about this ongoing economic financial meltdown? And I'm saying this as some kind of a radical leftist that I think it was invented by some capitalists to show how impotent the left is, with all moral criticism, how irrational capitalism is. I didn't hear of any feasible leftist alternative to it. I mean, it is as if to demonstrate that the left really doesn't have an alternative. So uh, my point is the following one. Where was the limit of Marx? Uh, one should be very clear here. You know that uh, in the famous passage in his Grundrisse, before Capital, Preparatory Works Manuscripts, Marx developed this notion of general intellect, which is the collectivized, collective, productive, and social knowledge, and so on, and so on. Uh, now, what was Marx's point? Mar I simplified very much, I know, if you are whispering to her what the bullshit he is saying. <laughs> 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 uh, 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 Marx was thought Marx accepted the premise that with the development of capitalism, the source of wealth is more and more knowledge and no longer labor time. So he was well aware that at a certain point, labor time will become meaningless as the measure of value. But I think this is again Marx also at his worst, because the conclusion he draws then in this passage of Grundrisse is totally naive one, is that this means that capitalism simply will disintegrate at a certain point because it will become meaningless. You know, exploitation is based on exploitation of value, value is labor and so on, so when labor time is no longer a source of value, it's meaningless. For him, the moment, again, wealth is socialized in general intellect, the source of wealth, capitalist exploitation becomes impossible. Here, I think, Negri, who tries to save this notion of general intellect, totally misses Marx's point. What Marx was not able to imagine was, I think, what, among other things, is going on today. Is that precisely general intellect itself, this collectivized, productive knowledge and so on, can be privatized again. But, now comes the catch, in this case, the source of what appears as profit, of privatized wealth, 
Here I agree with some Italian economists who developed this very nicely. Those who are the source of Michael Hart's recent wor work. Here I agree more than with Negri, I mean, with Hart. Uh, it's, uh, for example, Carlo Vercellone is the main one who wrote a book on this, namely on what? You know that in early capitalism we pass from rent to profit. First you have rent, for example, I don't know, you have some property, you let the other guy use it, but you just, you are not involved in productive process. You just, then, so capitalism is more and more from rent to profit. The theory of Vercellone and his colleagues, I think it's very nice theory, is that with the predominance of cognitive capital, of collective knowledge, and its privatization, we are returning to rent. That what explains today's capitalism is, to put it in these awkward Deleuzean terms, the becoming rent of capital. Uh, how? Let me give you a simple example, just to explain this. A stupid one, generally known, Bill Gates. How did he become from... 30 years ago, you know, a nobody uh, tinkering in his garage, now the richest man in the world. Okay, a year ago he was 60 billion, now he is 35. Big loss. I would like to be in that position to say, <laughs> I lost 30 billions, I only have 35 now. <laughs> okay, what I would say is that uh, uh, I think it's a little bit ridiculous to use the terms of, you have, have to stretch it, overstretch it too much to speak about exploitation here. You know, like, is he ultra, if anything, A, let's be honest, he's paying his workers relatively well, so it's not that. B, I also think you cannot play the game of extra profit from other, no, I think it's clear situation. Where is, what's the source of Bill Gates' wealth? Is that with quasi-monopoly position of Microsoft, he privatized what is de facto our general intellect. The universally spread Microsoft as the language, and he's getting rent for that. I think the only consistent explanation is his inner And this also explains why, for example, even if other programs like Linus or all that stuff are, so hackers tell me, I'm too stupid to judge, are objectively better. Nonetheless, we are still paying how much? One, two hundred dollars to use Bill Gates. Because you have to be part of the problem of Linus is that it's not to such an extent part of general intellect. Uh, and I think it's clear also that this is the reason why the price of Microsoft product is totally, okay, not totally, but to a large extent uh, without any relation to the so-called costs of production. It's not that Bill Gates says, oh, now we have to work more here in West, so it will cost more. The cost is absolutely not decided in these terms. It's totally different rent controlling, uh, how should I put it, rent controlling uh, logic there. Uh, and I think the same goes for natural resources, with oil and so on. It's again, what, what is Saudi Arabia and others doing? It's rent. Uh, so uh, this, okay, I don't have time to conclude now. I don't have time to, uh, to go into one direction, which would have been very uh, interesting here, into what does this mean politically. Here I have a pessimist conclusion which is the following one. Precisely because rent cannot be left in a simple way to the market to decide, the way if you produce something like 
bottle of water, you know, there are others, Poland, whatever, all of them I know with more bacteria than the simple tap water, we know the story and so on. But what I mean, here you can say, okay, with competition, market decides how much to pay. With rent, control or intellectual property, it's not as simple as that. Because first, here it's clear what I am selling. This, the object, you know, it's no But, you know, where does Bill Gates' private property that he's allowed to sell begin? Where does common property stop? There is no natural law there. It has to be in an ultimately totally arbitrary way. It has to be state regulated, which is why we need state. We need strong state, more than ever. Here I totally disagree with those up to a point negri who dream about the state is disappearing. No, for this becoming rent of profit capitalism, a strong regulatory state is needed more than ever. And this state, I claim, in order to do this work of regulation, like to decide this is this can be privatized, that can be privatized. And again, I cannot emphasize to what extent these are totally uh, arbitrary decisions. Like, you know, some companies just following the market logic wanted to uh, patentize and this way privatize DNA structures. No, okay, the state intervened and so on. This is a totally contingent process. I claim that this, I think, gives a certain privilege to a strong authoritarian state. Okay, but that's another line of thought. To conclude, I would like to say now something more that this structure where rent mixes with profit and so on renders the whole process much more mystified and non-transparent than the one described by Marx, which is why I claim ideology is more and more materially efficient today. Happy those who think Today's meltdown means, oh, people will finally see the irrationality of capitalism and so on. No, on the contrary. I think the first reaction in a crisis is that you cling even more desperately to your fundamental uh, ideological positions. Let me give you simply a couple of proofs. I don't know what you were doing, but on that very day, when was that tax day, tea parties, about a week or two ago, you know? I was tired as a dog, I just arrived from Europe, so I was sitting in a room, hotel room, uh, I was already in the States, I think I was in, 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 in LA, watching TV, and I was jumping between the two programs where my love was divided. On the one hand, I cannot resist it, on PBS, I think, and it went on, so I was jumping from one to the other. So on the one side, it was on PBS, a documentary on that great, lab, you know, left folk singer, Pete Ziger, Power of a Shock. On another program, I, uh, <laughs> this is the only news I, I hear, it's uh, Fox News, of course. Fuck it, they are the only interesting, passionate one. I hate that boring <laughs> political correctness of, thanks CNN, I prefer Fox News. Now, I, w I think United States need a leftist, violent Fox News with that spirit, but leftist, no? Okay, so, uh, uh, and what I got on the Fox News was a live transmission of one of these tea parties in Austin, Texas, where some right-wing country singer was singing an anti-Obama, anti-democratic, whatever song. Two things did strike me. First, 
the incredible similarity between that song and Pete Seeger's song. If you forget about political opposition, the basic constellation was the same, you know. We poor, hard-working people, we will not allow to be exploited by the rich, financial, ruined by speculations, and so on and so on. That is to say, we all know this triumph of the populist right, Again, it's another example of this cow disappearing, uh, this Benjamin wisdom, you know, disappearing left, the, the place taken, okay, let's not exaggerate, not by fascism, but by right-wing populism. The other thing which did strike me is, and here you can see if you need it, a brutal, brutally direct proof of how ideology functions, of the material force of ideology. The crazy irrationality of this scene. There was a guy singing enough of it, we ordinary hardworking Texans, which is why, did you hear the last joke? They want to secede now, no? They speak about, I love this. <laughs> you will become, you laughed at us, you know, Balkan, Balkanization. <laughs> you will get it, you will get it now, no? <laughs> no, what I want is that, let's be serious. I mean, don't people know the basic facts? We can have, if you are a conservative ec economist, and I agree, I'm skeptical. I hope Obama's plan will more or less work. And I allow you all the doubts. But my point is, one thing you cannot accuse Obama of, that he's taxing the ordinary people. I mean, look at his tax plans. Over 95% will pay lower taxes. Just some 3% will pay, of the richest, wealthiest, will pay higher taxes. So how can you get thousands to protest against ordinary people paying taxes for the rich and so on and so on? This ideological madness goes on. Like I read again, and I follow news about her, she's the greatest. Whatever you think, Ayn Rand, there is only one Ayn Rand. You know that her Atlas Tract is already again 35 now at Amazon.com. Uh, and uh, and there is the whole movement now, and like we need Ayn Rand again, this Obama socialism and so on. But wait a minute, she is the cause of the shit you are in now. We all know he admitted it. You know that historical hearing of Congressional of Alan Greenspan, where he wonderfully he used the term ideology. You know that yes, there is a flaw in my ideology, but. Alan Greenspan is an objectivist, don't you know this? He's a card-carrying Randian, how should I put it? So it's, what I'm saying is that when you have this, what rationally appears as clear irrationality, there are only two solutions. Either people are stupid, and in spite of all, I don't think people are stupid, or ideology is alive as material force is alive more than ever. Why? Where do I see that authoritarian tendency which I already mentioned before? Uh, today. Uh, did you notice how... Okay, let me go now just briefly into this financial uh, meltdown stuff. What did strike me is the absolutely unconditional character of the demand. We have to do something. Like, how... You remember when we fight global warming, AIDS, hunger, healthcare. There is always time to reflect, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's a serious problem. We will meet next year to debate it again and so on. No? <laughs> like, for example, for hunger, everybody agrees and the big powers met. 
they dedicated 20 billion dollars to it today. <laughs> this looks <laughs> if you see them down, you don't even lean down to pick them up. No, 20 billion, what is this compared to? But uh, what I want to say is that uh, here you negotiate, but did you notice how when it was the question of the so-called bailout money, there was an absolute emergency. The real was here. Even, did you notice how you, by you I mean American political community, you went into practically a kind of emergency state in the sense of, do you remember how first the Congress rejected it? And then basically all of them got together. McCain, Obama, Bush twisted the arms and the message was, listen, democracy is nice, voting, but now this really needs to be done. <laughs> Fuck off. It was kind of de facto emergency state. The message was clear. Stop about voting. This has to be done. And it was done. You remember how? It was very mysterious. In one week, they, they turned it around. Here you can see how our real is capital, how should I put it? You know, you can negotiate, reinterpret, no offense against you, Avital, you can deconstruct whatever, but uh, money is the undeconstructible condition of deconstruction justice, <laughs> how should I put it? You know, here you don't joke. This is, this is, uh, uh, this is the power of uh, ideology. And here things are tragically clear. Let me finish, maybe I'm even repeating myself, I don't think so, by quoting the guy whom I don't otherwise excessively appreciate as a good guy, Bill Clinton. He did a nice thing. No, no, no. I'm very much tempted to acknowledge that many people do nice things. Like yesterday at my talk, I mentioned, I wanted to dedicate her talk, uh, my talk here to her, Marilyn Chambers, you know, the porn star who, my God, big progressive fighter, I'm not kidding. You know what she did? A, she was the first one to have a sex scene in her, behind the green room, with a black guy. A black guy screwing her. This was extremely important, because, as already Franz Fanon wrote, it's easily acceptable for a racist, for a white guy to screw a black girl. But it's much more problematic publicly to accept the, the other way around. Second thing, you know that publicity of her with some ivory whatever powder holding a small child. This is this is wonderful idea. Why these patriarchal divisions? Why either a clean mother or a sexualized woman? Why not both? Why not together? So all my heroes, why not Bill Clinton? <laughs> Mary, Mary <laughs> in Chambers, no? In on October twenty-third, two thousand eight, Bill Clinton made a, and we should read this, my God. Again, everything is in the media. But uh, here I respectfully disagree with a guy whom I otherwise respect, uh, uh, Noam Chomsky. As he said to a friend of mine, he really thinks that there is no need for interpretation today, we just have to tell people the truth. You know, people had to be... Yeah, people basically know, I think, no, this is way too naive. What do I mean? Okay, on that date, Clinton at the United Nations gathering marking the World Food Day, he gave a speech under the indicative title, We Blew It on Global Food. And he made it very clear that today's global crisis shows how, I quote Clinton, we all blew it, including me, when I was president. How? And he goes on very consequently, by treating food crops as commodities instead of as a vital right of the world poor. 
So he is very clear here. Clinton puts the blame on international and Western big state bodies on forcing third world states into modernizing, globalizing their agriculture, opening it up, and so on and so on, and uh, you know, dropping government subsidies and all that stuff, and so on and so on. And the result is clear. While crops are exported, farmers thrown out of their land, are pushed into slums, available for outsourced sweatshops, and countries had to rely more and more on imported food. This looks good. The problem is that when then, for other reasons, the development of China and drought, global warming, and so on, the prices of food go up, you have a catastrophe, and you end up where you are today in Haiti, where they are again, not again, selling mud cakes, literally. They are selling mud cakes. On, because you get some minerals and they somehow fill your, fill your stomach. So, Clinton got it here, correctly. The problem is here what? The problem is that in spite of his proclamations, again, read the news together, read this news on Clinton together with news a month later in November 2. 2008 of things which even terrified me. You know that it's not, it's even worse than Clinton admitted there. Again, you read this, this is again one of those news, you know, here and there you get them, they tend to disappear. This is for me really horrible. I mean, usually I'm a cynic, I don't care, fuck off, the sooner we all drop dead, the better, but not this. <laughs> you know what happened? It's really a historical date. Uh, a group of South Korean companies basically negotiated a 99 years lease on 3.2 million acres of the best farmland of Madagascar. It's exactly half of its entire arable land. And they made it clear that they will not even use it to produce food, but mostly export industrial plants and so on and so on. And then I learned that in more and more countries this is going on even in the countries which we usually associate with uh, hunger. For example, British Sun Biofuels is planting biofuel crops in Ethiopia, Mozambique, and Tanzania, buying large parts of the best land. So again, what Clinton is deploring, it's going on even more recently because, because now we all know we are approaching a time when there will be... when. I mean, with all the poetry of immaterial production of Negri and Hart, the fact is that uh, more and more there will be wars even for water, material, resources, and so on and so on. So basically, Western countries are systematically already buying the best land in third world countries. It's not even just making local economy change uh, shift into export industrial plants or whatever. No, it's simply directly, directly buying them. So what's my problem here? My problem is that we shouldn't moralize here. We should uh, add to what Clinton says two things. Uh, how, uh, the, especially how the West is uh, treat, the West is cheating here. That's the first note. You know, on the one hand, we from the West were putting pressure on third world countries uh, to 
you know, open yourself to the market, no state subsidies, and so on, while and we Europeans, if anything, are worse than you Americans. Why we are saying no in global economy, self-sufficiency is outdated, but we take extreme care in the case of an emergency state so that we can survive of remaining self-sufficient. Like, the whole European community works like this. By God, do you know that in European Union, on average, every cow gets 600 euros a year support from Brussels, which is higher than the year uh, per capita product of a third world typical country. So again, the West doubly cheats here. It advises them to do what the West itself is not doing. Second thing where we should a little bit radicalize Clinton, I agree with him when he says food is not a commodity like others. But then let's go on a little bit. Defense, as all patriots are aware, is not also not is also not a commodity like others, arms, no? Then Food, of course. Water, it's not. Energy is not. Environment is not. Commodity like others. We need it. Culture is not. We need it. Education is not. Health is not. So, what then remains? Maybe some stupid toys from China, cheap. In other words, if you bring Clinton's reasoning to the end, we have to raise the question of communism again. Thank you very much. <laughs>